restaurateurs know this all too well, where if you, you know, you know, have a dish that's, that's spoken up and, and you have, you know, talk about the, the chef's background and how is his, you know, his favorite dish growing up as a child and all of this, we eat all of that. We eat all of that. That actually influences our experience. Because again, we're not eating the food, we're eating our brain's mental model. And that mental model is uh, really shifted by all of these things outside of just the food itself. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm very excited to talk to the authors of the book, Blind Sight, the mostly hidden ways marketing reshapes our brain. Matt Johnson and Prince Gooman are joining me today. How are you guys doing? Great. Thanks awesome. so much for having us, Shane. Pleasure to be here. Yeah, yeah thank you guys. I'm, uh, I'm very excited about this book. I, I just got started on it and it's way in the wheelhouse of the show. And I know you guys, um, you guys kind of have uh, very compatible backgrounds for writing this book, but I like mm -hmm. to imagine how you first met was like you bumped into each other or you were, you were at like some sort of like, like a, like a AA, but for names. And like <laughs> one of you was like, I wish my name was more boring. And then Matt was like, I wish my name was more exciting. And then you're like, we should be friends. And <laughs> is that, is that basically how you met? Oh man. I mean, that's, a, that's such a beautiful origin story that I, don't, I almost don't want to spoil it by, by telling the actual truth. Um, that's funny. Um, I mean, so actually Prince and I go back to uh, undergraduate. So I don't want to date ourselves uh, saying exactly when this was, but it was uh, some some time ago. Uh, yeah. And uh, we, we were friends back in undergraduate, you know, together. And then we went on very, very different paths after graduation. So I went into uh, the academic. So I graduated in 2008. We'll just say that because that, you know, it's a very important time in American economy. Uh, and, uh, you know, we went in very different paths during this, you know, very strange time in, in you know, American history. So I went into, I basically hibernated, uh, you know, in the academic world and I hibernated in labs and libraries for, for five years. And that was my, my strategy for sort of waiting out the economy. And uh, I'm, you know, driven by curiosity, fundamentally driven by, you know, why we do what we do. And so I did a, a PhD in, in cognitive neuroscience and was really, in the nitty gritty of, uh, of sort of what makes us tick as humans. Humans are these, you know, strange, you know, paradoxical, uh, hypocritical, complex entities. And, and there's just, uh, you know, no, uh, no, no bottom to sort of understanding, you know, what this is. And at the same time, this was when uh, neuroimaging technology was really coming into full. And so I literally got to uh, put people in fMRI scanners, functional magnetic resonance imaging, and eavesdrop on their brains as certain processes were unfolding. Uh, so this was really my approach for uh, trying to understand this and trying to, I wouldn't say quench this curiosity, but speak to this curiosity. Uh, and uh, that, was, that was sort of my approach, that was my orientation, but I didn't meet back up with Prince 
uh, until a couple years later when I moved back to uh, you know my native San Francisco, uh, met up with Prince, and I find out what Prince has been doing for the past <laughs> decade. Uh, Prince, you want to want to yeah. tell him a bit? So basically, I also, can, can I stop you there for a dumb joke? Yeah, uh, please, I did please. it anyway. I uh, the next time, <laughs> I I just made a note to myself because I seriously want to use this. The next time I'm like in trouble with somebody for something, I'm just gonna be like, "Hey, come on, cut me some slack." I'm just a hypocritical complex entity. <laughs> or, or maybe I just introduce myself to people that way. What do you think? Because I think it works both ways, really. I, I think you just got yourself a job at Khloe Kardashian's PR firm, my dude. You know, <laughs> uh, Photoshopped her whole life. And now all of a sudden searching for who found the one non-Photoshop photo in the world. And then I'm it, sure somehow, some way they're going to tie it into empowerment later. God damn. It is, complex, it is a wonderful way to reframe things. Because <laughs> as I'm, well, we've all been so frustrated with one another for uh, uh, 13 months of a pandemic <laughs> and stress and unknowns and people as divided as 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 ever it would be it would be wonderful to see us all just accept uh, that we are and come together around the, uh, the fact that yeah we're these hypocritical complex entities what do you want me to do i'm not a robot i don't behave in the way you would expect a robot to behave i sign up for too many subscriptions to things even though i know better and then i don't ever check my credit card to make sure that I'm not still paying for some app that I thought I was going to use and never did. What do you want from me, world? <laughs> totally, totally. And and uh, to, to bring it to, to Prince as well, I mean, this is kind of the idea that marketers have about, you know, who their customers are. They imagine their customers are these, you know, incredibly rational, you know, if if A, then B, you know, kind of creatures. Uh, right. But, you know, it's just, it's just not the case, uh, you know, at all. And we all think I need to you know, realize our, our complexity a little bit more. And Prince, look. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's pronounced Gooman, right? <laughs> yes, sir. Gooman. Uh, uh, all right. So let's get your background. So while Matt hit out the recession by going to Princeton and becoming a neuroscientist, uh, <laughs> I decided to go to the uh, anemic job market. <laughs> and, Perfect. Uh, and I fell in love with marketing when companies were cutting out any extraneous spend. And my whole shtick on being a marketer of value was learning neuroscience, not at the level of Matt, of course. Right. So to go back to your joke, there's a truth in that, right? Like, I don't know. I just check out stuff. I use, you know, I, my voice to buy stuff on Amazon. I look at my credit card. He studied what's happening at the level of the brain there. And mm -hmm. I studied all the abstracts that all these guys put out to see how I could optimize marketing using neuroscience. So I did that for about 15 years. We like to think we are two sides of that coin. He studied neuroscience theoretically and was kind of thirsty for where's the application. I studied the abstract, the bullet points, if you may, of all this research, and I put it into practice for marketing. So, and to go back to your original joke, uh, we met somewhere uh, to, to dance around our names. It's funny because we, met in a social context in undergrad and you can add whatever color you want to that. And then over 10 years pass and we're professors and we're like, dude, haven't seen you in a while. Um, this is what I've been up to. He's like, this is what I've been up to. I'm like, there's a book here. And that was 
the start of Blindsight. Application heavy dude meets the neuroscientist and we sit together and think about all these different ways marketing and neuroscience flirt with each other and no one is really talking about it. Do you think that here's some a little off topic. Uh, do you think that when your last name is Johnson, you're just like, well, what are we going to do? I guess you just call him Matt. Like, what are you going <laughs> to? Right. I mean, <laughs> you know? what do you, I mean, he's. <laughs> He, I mean, sounds like a strong presidential name, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah, it just uh, feels. I don't know. It feels a little mailed in, but I, it's, it's. I like it. I like it. Well, so anyway, I'm, I'm excited. I'll, I'll, I'll get off uh, your names. That jokes will wear old in a hurry, but I'll probably do a callback to it by the end. Uh, prediction. Um, but I, I have a, a, a deep interest. Uh, in the well, one I know my listeners really like behavioral economics and that sort of stuff. All all this stuff, all the cognitive bias stuff. You know, uh, the 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 um, you know, I I just got I probably told like three different people last week to get the book Thinking Fast and Slow. You know, and and I just love these concepts. But more importantly. I have I have this show and then I just launched a new podcast and we're doing Patreon, we're doing all these other things. And I'd really like to find out like not just what your book is about, but in the course of this interview, how I can fleece my audience out of as much money as possible. But here's the thing. I also want you guys to teach them how to not be tricked by marketing thing. Like I, you know, I want it to be fair. So I want it to be like a real battle between Dude, us. So you hit the nail on the head. We wrote right. this book for everyone <laughs> to understand all these cognitive biases and behavioral economics uh, is typically the, the first little hit that gets you into this world mm -hmm. and that rabbit hole proverbially goes way deep. And, 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 and I like that you recommended people thinking fast and slow. It's all about decision-making. That's one chapter in the book. Um, yeah. so to go back to what you're saying, you know, you're joking, but also there's some truth to that, right? Like how do I make money, but how do I also not take advantage of my audience and have them make a decision? That's their decision without fleecing them. Right. Yeah. And, and so, so although we wrote this book, we, it's everything is in this book for anyone to be like, okay, this is why I get in line to buy iPhone 75 every single year. Right. But at the same time, we also teach marketers to use this stuff with ethics, but here's all the ways that you can better freaking connect because you've mentioned your own audience a bunch of times right now, you have a connection with your audience, right? Shane. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and we use neuroscience to help people create that connection and do it freaking ethically because yeah. there's elements there that, um, consumers are getting smarter and, 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 and the world of using sleazy sales and marketing techniques, um, is, is expiring and we just have to be more authentic and, and, and mm -hmm. we can go down that rabbit hole if you like, Jan, but there's so many different ways we can do that. Oh, go oh beyond man, I would love to go down that rabbit hole for, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you just from a personal level, I'll, I, I think usually people like hearing, I like, I like oversharing as much as possible because I, nice. I think that if, if people, if people connect with, uh, if I make it personal, people relate to it. Some people are like, stop talking about yourself and just listen to the scientists. But I, I, 
just just so to give you a little context, um, I just quit to selling ads on my podcast, and I went I've went all in on Patreon and building a community. And on Patreon, I have like weekly meetups. We play board games, all these sort of things, and. A lot of it was due to COVID and being frustrated by every podcaster peddling supplements and there being a lot of motivated reasoning to uh, to say supplements or some like cure all for everything and and a, a lot of pressure on on people to sell uh, snake oil um, and and it was also just just it's when podcasting started it was marketers were throwing money at podcasters. And then they're like, wait, how many people are listening? And how and and I even told my audience about this. And they're like, oh, we can skip past the ads. Don't even worry. Like, well, some people aren't skipping past the ads. Otherwise, why would they be buying the ads? And from my point of view, for me to sit and sell someone some magical mail order deodorant that they don't need. And then I get like some little sliver of that compared yeah. to just getting someone to like, hey, just give me money and come hang out with me on Patreon. And there's bonus content and stuff is such a better, uh, it is. better deal. But I think what you summarize so succinctly, dude, is the evolution of the consumer. Okay. Mm -hmm. People don't want to pay for shit mm -hmm. until recently. Content mm -hmm. wants to be free. Why? Content doesn't want to be free. You own now two podcasts and you're a stand-up comedian. Do you know how much free content comedians have to put out, even though that's their art and their work? And the only way to monetize it is ads. It's because people don't want to pay. Now, yeah. Matt and I love ideas like Patreon because, and this is coming from a marketer who helps people make really amazing ads. And we can talk about ads in a hot second, but mm -hmm. I think the point you made, it's worth highlighting. Consumers are slowly understanding the, the, the cost of free. And they're, they're actually going, hey man, I'd rather pay to not pay for ads, right? That wasn't always the case. We write blog posts that give away so much free content. We're not on Patreon. We're not on any of the, the paid blog pieces on Medium or whatever, but ultimately, this is good for the artist community. This is good for us as, as entrepreneurs that people actually care enough to pay that you're not forced to sell freaking Yohimbe or whatever mushroom tea you're selling. And that yeah. is, I think, a hat tip to consumers. Like, you know what? I want to pay for content now. That was 2020. People want to pay for content now that previously was free and all these other... yeah. They're just giving data away and stuff and they don't really know what's happening in there. But at the end of the day, when you start paying for stuff, it's more private for you as a consumer and it's more authentic. Like you just illustrated Shane for you, you get to yeah. hang out with the audience you have a connection with. That's a game like, changer. Hey, come out, hang out with me and I'll just tell you to go out and pick your own mushroom tea. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> but there's, there's, um, <laughs> there's it, this, I think everything's going the subscription model and which is a whole other, you know, there's ways of gaming that I'm such a sucker for it. I have more subscriptions than I, than I use. And, and you know, that that's the racket. You, you get people in for the gym membership. They don't use it, you know, but I kind of just dig that 
racket a little bit more than having subconscious commercials pumped into my head all the time. But here's what's interesting. I watch the way my um my folks are like really anyone if i if i see any of the people that are like oh this netflix or whatever we don't we don't need it like my my parents if i if i tell them to watch netflix or something like the same show that i know that they watch on tv like you can watch that on netflix you can start at the beginning of the episode watch the series in order instead of like seeing the last 10 minutes of an episode picking back up on a rerun piecing together what the show is and and i've taught them how to do that and even that it's like they miss the commercials it's it's like they miss the break or something like that and it's huh. it's startling i i don't know i don't know if it's i think what it is is it's like built into you know how tv was made with those cliffhangers at every commercial yeah. and streaming is no longer like that. I think that there's something engaged to that, that like excitement, like you go to get the popcorn or whatever, what's going to happen when they, when they come back. And cause you don't get that with streaming anymore. And then there's also something about just like taking a moment to like, Oh, I'm going to work on a Sudoku or something like that for two minutes. But there's, but it's the strangest thing. When I noticed that I was like, how are they, it's like they're they're actually missing the ads right now. They're missing them when they're streaming something. Totally. I mean, I think you know we're thinking about you know generations that grew up on TV. Like when you know TV for our parents' generation was like the iPhone for us. You know, and people yeah. just became so inundated with it that it, it dictates sort of the cadence of of sort of how you see the world to a certain extent. And absolutely content you know taps into that provided these cliffhangers that's something we talk about in the book uh this this concept called the zygomatic effect where you know we're sort of naturally driven towards completion uh we need to sort of see resolution and uh this is something that uh you know content creators you know netflix hbo everybody knows about uh and has, has, has tapped into intuitively that if you want somebody to tune in next week or whatever the next episode is you know give them that sense of oh my god i have to find out what happens next or even you know in a in a you know four or five segment show over the course of an hour the tv breaks are set up to the same exact extent like oh, you know tune in you know don't don't don't, you know, change the dial, you know, we're going to come back and, you know, it's going to see, you know, so-and-so, you know, resolution of it. So for sure, it's been sort of etched into kind of the, the social fabric uh, to a certain extent. It's for the natural cadence we see things. Uh, and, and I think, uh, you know, content creators have, have you know, definitely came in and, and sort of galvanized that as well. There's something so there interesting. Is... It's, it's, gotcha. an old, it's an old trick, but I'm trying to implement it with my new show now that we're putting more into editing and it's getting it's giving me a real appreciation to what goes into um editing so uh, all of all of the things that you you don't notice when it's when it's flawless you don't no one's ever like that's the average person was isn't like that was terrific editing they only notice when it's off but the idea of of having a little preview of an episode for like 15 seconds before the thing starts of uh, something maybe you cover at the end or whatever. That's such a good, you know, the, the way that the news always did that uh, coming up uh, here, how 
80 people could die of a thing that's not actually going to happen and then and then but they never get to it until the very end of the yeah um of the thing that's a that's a classic but man it works so well it it's a classic but and it's and it's supported by science right the zignaric effect is the feeling of unfinishedness when you what's feel the, un- what's that name the zignaric Zignarnik. oh man i i I have it in my head. I have all the letters in my head. I don't, I couldn't spell it for you. If I, tried. I love like, this new word. Zignarnik yeah. effect. Get into Zignarnik it. Effect. Now it I have a Zignarnik same. effect wondering what the Zignarnik effect is. Yeah. Like it, like try this next time you're allowed to leave your house and go, go, go to a restaurant. Right. If you actually, uh, in the middle of ordering something, you stop and you say, give me a second, your waiter is going to be more engaged because they want to finish that order because you literally stopped in the middle of it. Um, mm. It is a sense of unfinishedness that content creators decades ago just kind of intuited and we call mm. it a cliffhanger, but the Zignaric effect is not anything new. It's, it's, it's been researched decades ago. So, mm. and that's, that's one reason why we tune in to what you, you, your, your instincts are right on chain. We're like, Oh yeah, 40 people got stuck in a roller coaster. Mm-hmm. more after these commercials like well shit did they get out i mean you want to see happened? him hanging upside yeah. down on that coaster and you're like oh when are they gonna show yeah. him hanging upside down and then, of course yeah. they save it till the last it. 30 seconds it wasn't as good totally. as he thought it was gonna be yeah. um well that's that's kind of interesting i was thinking about how how uh speaking of like being in a restaurant or something someone on a phone mm-hmm. the idea that you can't hear the other end of the conversation kind of has that same effect so you hear that person more because you don't your your mind isn't is filling in the gaps like what the hell is going and, on over there and check check this out Shen. the opposite of it also works and that and marketers call this engagement and it is engagement the cliffhanger engages you to come back right uh-huh. but the lack of having a milestone in a process keeps you engaged because it's unfinished. So the example I want to tell you is social media. When you're scrolling through social media, there is not a mile marker. Hence, there is a sense of unfinishedness. Mm. Therefore, you keep doom scrolling until your finger gets arthritis, right? If you actually want to reduce social media addiction, you should have, hey, you've done five scrolls. Would you like to stop? Mm. That is using the Zignaric effect oppositely to help people not be addicted to IG or TikTok or whatever, right? So you think about digital social media design, it is using Zignaric effect in the opposite way by not giving you a place of finishedness or what Matt and I are going to call milestones. And that's what keeps you doing this. And the more you do this, the more ad revenue. So there's yeah. Zignaric effect in a digital place. There's I, many other I, reasons why you stuck stuck to it, but Zignaric is part of what keeps you doom scrolling. As much as I need social media now more than ever for my career, I actually took like a three year break from it. I I still I'm so happy for anyone that breaks away from it, and I do. Oh, I, I I feel like I have a healthy relationship with Instagram. I feel mm-hmm. like I don't doom scroll. I feel like I see a couple funny 
videos. Once in a while, I get stuck in a little thirst trap, and I'm like, oh, God, all right, well, what are you, 16? And <laughs> and then I... And I like I just have like a I hit the search thing and I'm like ah oh, well this is embarrassing who are you and then <laughs> and then I and then I focus and I make sure I'm like more animal videos and I click those so it will show me more of that but um but I when Trump took office I noticed on Twitter uh I, I would I noticed that I'd go through. And I, I knew about all this stuff, but I didn't like intellectually, but I didn't feel it. I wasn't mindful of it. One day it occurred to me, oh, I'm I'm going through, I'm seeing some funny tweets, I'm getting some like interesting content, but then I'm not stopping until I find something to be enraged about. <laughs> <laughs> like I just need it. What what oh, is man. what is with the because that's a it's very intuitive why yeah. you'd get stuck in a thirst trap or something like that why we're drawn to junk food or whatever but what's with the masochism of the doom scrolling oh man good question I mean I, I would say first shit I think you have it spot on that uh you know the social media is a, is a good tool. You know, and it is. I mean, try starting a podcast without, you know, any social media at all. Good luck to you. Mm -hmm. uh, it is absolutely a tool. Uh, but, you know, social media is uh, it, it's a good servant, but a poor master. Right. So we need to sort of use it in the ways that we want to in ways that align with our, our goals. But the, the device and the system and the business model, which is, is primarily geared towards ads, uh, tries to move our behavior uh, in ways where we don't necessarily want it to. Uh, in, in ways that doesn't necessarily align with our, our longer term goals. Uh, and, and so one big thing, I mean, there's so many different ways to dissect it from a you know, user experience standpoint that, that Prince is going into to a, you know, a social standpoint and, and sort of tribalism and a sort of need for belonging. Uh, but also, as you're talking about now, from an emotional standpoint that we uh, do tend to uh, attenuate. So we, we sort of get numb to a certain level of uh, emotion. Uh, and you need a, a sort of higher degree of intensity in order to stay engaged and keep that level of engagement. And this is what uh, social media algorithms have converged upon, not just social media, but YouTube there as well. You get sort of increasingly intense videos the more you watch YouTube, just because, uh, you know, if you start watching out, watching, you know, some cat video, uh, you know, you'll eventually get bored of that level of emotional intensity. You need like a really hardcore cat video until you're watching lions eat people. Uh, and that is what gets you to that level of, of sort of emotional engagement. And it's the same with uh, with social media and what you're describing in terms of, you know, looking for, uh, you know, all this, this, you know, political vitriol being spewed and, and Trump said this and Trump said that. It's the same thing. We need more and more and more outrageous, uh, emotionally evocative things to, to keep us engaged. And that's what, you know, the algorithms have really converged onto because engagement means revenue when we're working in this this ad model. It is funny yeah. because he was such a master of that. And since he's been banned from social media, like a month later, it's just everyone's like, I'm going outside. <laughs> <laughs> like the war's over. <laughs> like, huh, totally. People don't just gonna, do it themselves. Like, like, uh, like uh, it's uh, in, in fact, they're uh, they're almost a little too comfortable. I, I feel I feel like. But but that is. What's that expression in neuroscience? The opposite of love is not hate; it's indifference. 
something like that? Like, isn't isn't um, isn't kind of like hate and love kind of activating um, the the same part of the brain? Uh, yeah, I mean, not necessarily the same part of the brain. I mean, you can think about it in terms of emotional dimensions. Uh, mm-hmm. so we have sort of, you know, linguistic labels for these things, but really we're talking about dimensions uh, mm-hmm. with emotion being, uh, you know, a three-dimensional space. Uh, and so you think about, you know, between love and hate, that's on sort of the same spectrum. Uh, mm-hmm. And so if we're looking at something that's orthogonal to love, it wouldn't be hatred because that's just, you know, on the other end of the spectrum, it would be something completely different in a different plane. Uh, so, yeah, something like indifference or, I don't know, hunger Curiosity. or boredom or, yeah, totally, yeah. something something totally different there. Interesting. So yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to share a story. Listeners aren't going to understand why. You guys will understand immediately. Um, and, and then, and we'll get into kind of, um, some nitty gritty, uh, about the book. So I think I was in France. I think I was in Paris, um, eight, uh, when was it like eight years ago, 10 years ago, something like that. And I had, um, pate for the first time. And this was like around the time I had just started liking wine. I didn't like wine before that time, but I I went, it was, we went to some sommelier and had the sommelier uh, describing the flavors and I'm doing this weird thing where I'm slurping stuff. And as he's describing the flavors, I'm starting to note these things that he's describing and like, oh, I guess I do taste that now and it was it was when wine first like oh okay it's clicking now i'm appreciating this but pate was like there was something about it because i i like fancy stuff and i i get that yeah i'm sure i've i'm sure i've shared a few times on the show the idea of uh you guys ever hear about how how lobster used to be uh, like there was a time in in new england when they gave lobster to prisoners and stuff it was like garbage food and then uh, there was like prison riots to stop eating lobster all of the time and and uh and then once the scarcity happens then it becomes this delicacy and blah 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 so i get that stuff but i still there's certain things that i feel like i'm supposed to like or i'm not being adventurous enough if i'm not enjoying it and pate was one of these things that i just i did not like and i felt like i should and i went on this like weird mission that spanned years where just like every few months i would order pate i would i would have a little bit uh and i'd be like nope still don't like pate and and this is often i'm usually traveling by myself (laughs) i'll like go to a nice place to treat myself right spend a silly amount of money to not like pate by myself years years of this and then i was in like albuquerque at some restaurant before a show and i did this i ordered pate and i and i had whatever however it was made it was it was the first time i was like oh i like this i like (laughs) this now all right and i've enjoyed pate ever since well then i go and open up your book and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and tell 
tell uh, tell the listeners the rest of the, uh, <laughs> of that story. What I actually just got myself uh, to do, which is this is seven years of training to like Pate, oh, by the way. And then I read your I didn't read your book soon enough. Oh man! Well, I'm I'm honored to have uh, played a role in this this personal evolution. Maybe a little bit too late, uh, but yeah. So this it's it's kind of a wild story, and we actually kick off chapter one with this. So we know that Shane's read at least chapter one. At He's read the first one. the first paragraph of the first chapter. Uh, but it, it maybe it's the most relevant to his life. We'll see. Uh, but yeah, so there's this this uh, this this wild story took place in Brooklyn where, uh, you know, real sort of elite French food kind of gets a bad rap that, you know, is it really the food or is it all the, you know, the visuals and the storytelling and, and really everything that goes on, goes into it, you know, could we basically trick people to think that they're eating, you know, five-star Michelin chef uh, level pate, which you'd spend, you know, $55 for it. Can we trick them to thinking it's that good with dog food? And so what they did to test this empirically is they took straight up dog food from not fancy dog food, like just basic dog food, Alpo from, you know, Trader Joe's and they blended it up to get the basic consistency of a pate. And what they did is then they took the different pates and they just put them on plates and they had, you know, crackers, nice garnish, you know, everything you do with pate and they served them to people. So it was five dishes in total. There was like three different uh, dog food pates. There was one uh, duck pate and there was a, a goose pate, I think, and maybe a veal pate. I'm not sure. Uh, but different pates, different dog foods. And they just ask people, all right, you know, what are these is dog food? The rest are, are, you know, pates, which one's which? And people were about at chance. Uh, people could not distinguish between uh, the pate, the literally pate that you would spend $50 at least for a small smidgen of it at a, at a Manhattan, you know, Michelin star restaurant and literal dog food that you just blend it up and you put on a plate that resembles pate. Um, so we, we love this example because it really speaks to this fact that we're really not primarily sensory creatures. Uh, you know, there's much more that meets, you know, the tongue than what meets the tongue. Uh, you know, it's not literally that we're actually eating each bite of food and that's a faithful relay from our gustatory system to our experience, but actually we don't, eat the food at all. We eat our brain's mental model. And this mental model is extremely malleable. So this is really where, you know, the visual aspects, you know, come in, the storytelling, you know, restaurateurs know this all too well, where if you, you know, you know, have a dish that's, that's spoken up and, and you have, you know, talk about the, the chef's background and how it was his, you know, his favorite dish growing up as a child and all of this, we eat all of that. We eat all of that. That actually influences our experience. Because again, we're not eating the food, we're eating our brain's mental model. And that mental model is uh, really shifted by all of these things outside of just the food itself. Where's the, this is maybe toward the philosophical end of things, but I'm kind of wondering the distinction. So I have, speaking of Patreon content, so this new show is Mind Under Matter, but the my co-host for me, Nazer, he has all this like uh, just really terrific art that's very philosophical. It's usually art about making art, and and um, he uh, he has um, 
so we've been we've been each week as a Patreon series doing this mind under art where we have him explain a piece of an audience's choice or whatever. And then it and tell the story of when he came up with that and everything. Just like at the museum, you read the little thing, you read the story behind it, and then you're like, oh, that's how the brush that's why these brush strokes are interesting. I was staring at the Mona Lisa for six hours trying to understand why the hell anyone likes this thing. And and finally I read this interesting little narrative. Okay, I get it. And what's what's the difference between that and when you're when marketing's truly kind of just tricking people like you're you're just serving dog food <laughs> you know yeah. there, there's well, one thing between appreciating a fine dish more or or a piece of art more and then another thing when you're kind of selling snake oil and it's so many of the same uh so many of the same factors are are involved it is and it, and it is what Matt said. It is the mental model of it. Uh, I just don't want to gloss over the fact that you prefer the taste of dog food in Albuquerque than you like Parisian freaking pate in real life because it's oh, Albuquerque. Well, you probably did have dog food, Shane. It, it is probably, that's probably the case. But all, I mean, the other thing, you know, that you guys aren't considering is that perhaps dog food is amazing. And that's why dogs are constantly hungry all of the time is because they're eating better stuff than we are. And yeah, he just never like to sample it's it. It's the new lobster. It's the new lobster. <laughs> um, so by the way, just quickly, I do want to say that this uh, this podcast is sponsored by Elpo. If you go to <laughs> Elpo.com, offer code Pate with a question mark. Uh, you'll, you can get your bulk order of, of poor man's pate today, all day, every day. Um, it's because our brain is constantly working on mental models that doesn't stop, whether it's dog food, pate or what have you. And what's crazy about the senses. And, and before we move on to marketing, I do want to talk about senses a bit, Shane. Our taste is our weakest sense by far, uh -huh. which makes it more susceptible to mental modeling, right? Uh -huh. And I studied to be a SOM, so I'm fully probably part of this whole organism. But the mental model perhaps did not have enough data points for you to enjoy pate, right? As opposed to, here, here's, a, here's a glass of red wine in a Rydell crystal glass, and you're gonna enjoy it more. Because that's a mental model of their class that is actually feeding that information and adding to that mental model. Okay, here's the same $500 wine in a plastic cup. Mental model, but it's a plastic cup. It's going to affect the taste of it, even if it might not objectively affect the taste of it. More importantly, other things you don't take into account. If I were to say, Shane, this is a bottle. It's called Shannon. The winemaker's youngest daughter was named Shannon. And she hated cabs forever and ever. While he was making all these wines, this award-winning winemaker could not get his youngest daughter to like cabs. So on the day of her wedding, he created the cab that Shannon will like. This is that cab. You haven't even drank this cab, dude. And you know, I just gave you all of this mental modeling for you to do it. That's mental modeling. Now, mm. allow me to scaffold that towards tricking. There have been multiple 
bits of researchers, uh, multiple research, uh, multiple researchers about this, where they put people in a functional magnetic resonance imaging machine, and literally being told that story, a different part of your brain lights up. So the takeaway is, it isn't trickery. You are literally tasting it differently. So mm. allow me to apply that to marketing. Let's say I give you three golf clubs, right? Costco brand, starter brand. Some of us still remember starter from when we were kids and Nike and go hit, go hit the range. And research has shown with this exact example that when you believe you're using a Nike club, you hit the ball further. So mm -hmm. call it trickery. It's based on mental modeling, but this trickery has real objective impact on our behavior. Yeah. And that's what I like about this. That's how I reconcile being a marketer who creates these experiences and also being a consumer, right? Mm -hmm. That's how I reconcile. If I love Nike enough, I'm going to jump higher in Nikes. I'm going to run faster in Nikes, right? And that mm -hmm. belief system is part of the mental modeling. And, 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 you know, there is a hat tip there to marketers for making us love things enough that help us perform better in certain ways. Absolutely. I, I've, I say at least every 10 episodes that I, I think much of life is just finding the placebo that works for you. Yeah. And I love that quote. Totally. I'm, I'm the perception to think of, is reality in some ways, yeah. in many ways. And that's a true, that statement is truer than we typically think it goes beyond placebo at times. Right? Well, there's it, so much it, it, to do with expectations as well, where you go to some crummy diner and then they hit, you know, that that's the hot thing right now, kind of. And or, or some, I have a lot of friends that are like, oh, yeah, th this crummy diner down the street, they have the best hash browns or whatever. And you go in and they're fine enough hash browns, but it's almost the yeah. contrast of uh, you totally. see the roaches crawling everywhere and there's insulation bar. coming out of the ceiling and like well these hash browns are pretty good all things considered yeah, I mean, <laughs> we should do this research matt we should do a research on dive bars versus like nice lounge bars and i wonder if people feel drunker and doing more drunk and, and engage in drunken activities at a dive bar than they do at like a posh cocktail place and ironically you serve less alcohol at the dive bar right because i bet you could do that with with any like with eggs or anything else if if you if you have yeah i, I bet i bet if you had just because if you take like diner scrambled eggs and serve them in a fancy place that someone at the diner is head over heels over the same person um it's it's just there's some expectation there the, the, the crazy thing is with the going back to the placebo effect is uh even if you tell somebody it's a placebo you take somebody with a real ailment and you say you're in the placebo group this is how placebo works if you if you really believe in the placebo it actually results in the medical effects and if they believe it even if they know they're taking a placebo uh it, it still has the desired effects so uh the power of a belief really really goes deep and and we actually don't have to trick people quote unquote to uh really enable its its potency what about kind of the opposite of that the um what is it the bernays effect is that what it is or the the sauce bernays where you have you have something one time and you get sick from it and then you 
and then you have an aversion to that for yeah potentially totally. the rest of your life when as you're talking about alcohol whatever mm-hmm. that yeah there, there's sort of like the you know the opposite or the inverse of the the, the nocebo effect as well you know you tell people this is you know not going to cure you at all you know there's no way it's going to cure you when you give them a legit aspirin and uh you know and it doesn't do anything for them or you this is applied in, in pain research and, and analgesia where you tell them this you know this injection i'm going to give you doesn't hurt at all it's totally fine you know nobody has ever complained about this injection ever in the history of this procedure and you know that's a lie but you inject them and you know they're, they're generally okay with it so there, there's kind of a, a nocebo effect as well it's called there are certain times when when the there's like an override to <laughs> and the reality uh, <laughs> seeps in. I I, I remember uh, Thanksgiving, my mom made a uh, pumpkin pie for everyone, and uh, and I had a and I had a bite, and I was the first one, and I was like, "That's interesting." What? What did you put? And then I kept on t- <laughs> tasting it, and I was like, "What is this? A regular pumpkin pie?" And then, it, and it looked a little funny. We eventually figured out that it was um, somehow the cinnamon um, bottle got mixed up with uh, um, barbecue flakes or something like that. And, oh no! And so you notice. Uh, uh, also, I was at the dentist one time, and they were drilling this dead tooth that I uh, uh, broke the root or whatever on a on a half pipe. Um, well drunk, I'm uh, <laughs> just so proud. Um, but I I remember I was in the dental office, and he started he started drilling into the tooth, and I was like. Oh, I'm not scared of the dentist or anything. But I was like, oh, he's like, oh no, no, that's that's a dead tooth. There's no root there. If there was a root, believe me, you'd be on the ceiling right now. And I was like, well, okay, <laughs> maybe this is my imagination. And then he drills in again. I'm like, oh, he's like, oops, looks like there is a little live root there. Oh, so man. some of this, uh, there, there's a limit to all of these things as well totally that, that that's that's definitely a good good consideration worth including so you know when we think about the mental model you know clearly actual objective sensory input from you know our, our tongue from our pain receptors etc you know influences that mental model for sure um but we do see in certain instances where there's other influence as well and depending on how strong the signal is that you're getting from this sensory input uh you know these other factors can actually be more important and one of the reasons why it works you know, so well and is so potent in, as, as Prince mentioned, with our sense of taste, our sense of smell, is because for humans, these are some of our weakest senses. The signal that we're getting from our gustatory sensation at the level of the tongue, tongue receptors, this is so weak compared to, let's say, vision. So vision is by far our strongest sense. Uh, and so, you know, you're not really easily gonna trick the mental model for a visual experience. I don't care what you tell us, Shane, I'm in Oakland, California right now. You're not going to trick me into thinking I'm, you know, in Disneyland or something right now. You know, I don't, I don't know what your mental modeling process is like, but there's probably not a lot you can say that's going to trick my mental model for a, a really rich visual experience. 
Mm -hmm. uh, and same when it comes to really, really, you know, intense, you know, sensory haptic sensation pain. So, uh, you know, I, I don't know what that doctor would tell you to be able to look like, nope, Shane, it's not going to hurt at all. You know, it sounded like, you know, that the, the pain signal you get would just overwhelm any other influences there. So good, good, uh, good, good caveat there that, of course, it, it's a mix of both, you know, the raw input from the senses and also from these additional factors as well. Yeah, I, is is this kind of why some of the why the availability heuristic is just so prominent? This idea of if you can kind of visualize specifics of something that 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 overrides, um, I guess, what would you say, logic or statistical analysis or or something or, or probability, uh, yeah. the probability of it happening, um, just because it's. <laughs> that picture is is so strong. It's like a dream will scare the crap out of you. And I'm sure it's just like a couple yeah. off firings, just some gas being let out or whatever. There's gas in the brain, right? Yeah, um, totally. <laughs> I, I know so much neuroscience. <laughs> uh, I mean, those biases are, 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 are trippy, uh, but they're, they're so well researched and um, we only devoted one chapter to it, but we can talk about that for, for hours. And it's, it's the simple question. Why do we like what we like? Right. Mm -hmm. Why do we, why do we like certain things? And although you're talking about the availability heuristic in, in, in a separate context, but it's worth bringing that up now. Uh, the mere exposure effect is why we like things. When you're merely exposed to things, the more you interact with them, the more exposed to them the more likely you are to prefer them, right? And this mm -hmm. is why I, I can't think of a single person who might not know Coca-Cola in civilized earth, but Coca-Cola still spends over $10 billion on ads. Are they trying mm -hmm. to find someone in Papua New Guinea? Are they, are they spending $10 billion a year to find someone in Papua New Guinea to drink Coca-Cola? Of course not. It's because they are in the business of exposure mm -hmm. to keep the preference level up. Now, availability mm -hmm. heuristic and also the fluency heuristic, sort of distant cousins of the mere exposure effect. And here's what's trippy. Mere exposure effect incre increases your likelihood to prefer something. Uh, availability and fluency heuristics are trippy because not only do they add to the likelihood of you preferring it, they add to a sense of truth of whatever you're seeing. So mm -hmm. if, 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 uh, you know, what's your favorite uh, Italian restaurant in Oakland? If I ask Matt that, the first answer might come up, might be the one that was the most fluent to come up, might be the one that was most readily available, not necessarily the best answer, but it also feels truer to him that, oh yeah, this restaurant is the best Italian restaurant in town. And if you really think about the implication of that part of our biology and the way news is spread, because, you know, the, the initial inquiry is, doesn't matter how many facts I throw at you because you're fighting against your own biology. If I give you this fact check statement about the state of crime in the United States, um, that is one data point compared to the, um, you know, the alarmist local news that amplifies availability and fluency and mere exposure effect, not to likability, but to the believability of truth. And then you think about Facebook. So it's one story of one kid being kidnapped that's amplified all over Facebook. 
you're talking about hundreds, if not thousands of data points fighting against one data point. And I don't want to get political because I'm having fun. Politics is a fun out of shit. But that is the one thing we've lost over the last five years is our, our, our litmus test for truth because of all this other untrue things posing as true and being distributed with a lot more exposure than truth is. And now we're walking around as inherently suspicious people who cannot believe truths. And this isn't just about the right or left. This is everyone. We lost our sense of truth, man. And, and, and a lot of this has to do with the way news, fake news and real news is disseminated. Well, especially once you throw in um, unpredictability and a lack of control over, over things, and now you have kind of this learned helplessness and then consciousness kind of creates stories of why you should be helpless or why it should be against you. That's, that's the most horrific thing about the conspiracy um zealot stuff to me is all these scary tales peddlers it's like at least when it was at least when with with religion which has also done some untold harms through human history but it's also raised people up and given people things to strive for and er everything else and 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 there's been good things and there's been bad things whereas whereas the the like Illuminati stories and all that. I've I've never once seen someone as like you know I was down and out and and on uh, I was addicted to drugs and my my wife left me and then I I discovered the I discovered QAnon and I've realized that it was lizard people after me and and that's when I turned everything around. <laughs> It's it's just creating more stories to give up on on life. Um, and maybe I'm getting off track a little bit here. It's just something that's been on my mind. Um, no, I mean, it, that's a fair point, though. I mean, it, it you know, we can dig to the neuroscience there. But ultimately, it, it, this is the world we live in. You can Google yeah. some obscure theory and find a thousand YouTube videos. And that feeds into the mental model and the believability of it in the same in all the heuristics we're talking about. The fact that any obscure thing we can think of from lizard people to whatever has a YouTube video that makes you, if you buy into the YouTube video, you're going to buy into lizard people theory. It exists. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's no, there's no checks and balances. And, and at the, uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I was just going to say that at the time that we're recording this, which is, it'll be out in a few weeks. So this will be old news by the time someone's listening, but right now it's very big news which is Johnson and Johnson paused their trials over or paused their their vaccines over six people that had a rare blood clot that is no no the same number of people that have gotten the vaccine got this blood clot as normally gets the blood clot in the average population but it's rare maybe it did cause it whatever else but it's still it's six people out of out of 7 million and whereas i've been for 13 months i've been hearing people be like oh covid's no big deal and oh how many people really and the survival rate is this and that but then you hear these same people hear a story of six people 
that had some blood clot, and now all of a sudden, I told you these vaccines, and there's this poison and everything else, and I don't know why the microchip takes two shots <laughs> in some of them to like the first one puts it in, the second one activates it or whatever, but but um, but it's it's just I I, I catch myself too latching on to things there's there's been stories that i've seen that i want to believe to be true and i look at it and i'm like ooh this is juicy and then i'm like i better actually read this thing <laughs> and look at it and be like oh that's a little overblown okay that was a sensationalized headline yeah. um yeah i mean really what it comes down to is uh you know we're just not built to deal with this level of complexity and this scale. I mean, just think about 7 million people getting a, uh, you know, a dose of, you know, a medical technology, which is more complex than, you know, most of us could understand who's, you know, been through a couple biology classes even, um, you know, so it's, it's an incredible amount of complexity and this, you know, to, to bring it back to Prince's uh, earlier discussion about availability, the, the brain is lazy. You know, even if we could cope with that level of complexity, we wouldn't want it. We have what's called the law of least mental effort. Uh, if we can arrive at a, you know, a pretty good best guess with less thinking, we'll do that. And, and these are these shortcuts, these are the heuristics. And, and so one thing which we do is the availability heuristic where, uh, you know, the easiest sort of example to bring to mind seems like the most real and seems like the most weighted in terms of how we understand something. So uh, I hope this is not the case, but if we were, for example, to discover that there was a, a really vivid video uh, of somebody who was getting a blood clot who had gotten the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, say goodbye, like no one's ever going to take that vaccine ever again mm -hmm. uh, because it's so vivid and you can see, you know, the, you know, the, the suffering and you can see, uh, you know, the, the realness of it. And, it, you know, all the statistics in the world go out the, bit, go out the window. I mean, it's literally more than one in a million. Uh, but we weigh these individual instances so heavily in our mind because of the availability risk, because coping with the actual complexity uh, is, is, is really way too much for us. And uh, even if we could, we wouldn't want to, because again, you know, the brain is cognitive lazy and that's not an indictment of anybody out there. This is all of us. That's, that's a yeah. general feature of, of how, you know, the human condition deals with complexity. Uh, well, I, I know, I know not to, not to spend a ton of time on vaccines or as much time as, I don't know. I'm, I'm so, I mean, to, to me, it's like a way bigger deal than landing on the moon. I'm thrilled about it. I think there's so much potential and, and not beyond COVID, uh, not, not just getting us out of this, but more, I'm, I'm thrilled about it. I got my first one. I can't wait for my second, but, um, but there is, there is this common heuristic that, uh, and it's kind of why, uh, you see a lot of comedians are kind of COVID deniers and stuff. Then there's a lot of people in, in say like the psychedelic community or new agey community or whatever. And it's what's happening is there, there, there is this useful heuristic that has a lot of utility, which is that, oh, the news is just trying to scare you and get a reaction out of you. And they do that. They do that all of the time and and that's been the case for a very long time especially after 9/11 and things went to the 24/7 news cycle but um and then social media and everything else um but there's 
that that's like like you said something visual like someone gets murdered or a plane crashes or there's a fire like wow you know that that is that availability heuristic and that is the news does tend to sensationalize like oh there's a shark attack in australia don't go swimming in the ocean ever again but then you have something like a virus that spreads asymptomatically you have people that you're no longer hanging out in a tribe watching someone suffer someone's going to the hospital you're not interacting with this you're you're not seeing it and now you're applying this same heuristic or you're used to you see someone getting addicted to um pain pills or something like that and you go these pharmaceutical companies are corrupt and and then but then something like vaccine where you get one a year one a lifetime whatever depend it's it's just not the same. It's a completely different context, but it still falls under this umbrella of this otherwise useful heuristic that gets people through a lot of important decisions in life. Yeah, totally. I mean, and that's and that's why they're heuristics because it sort of gets us to uh, you know a good estimate most of the times. So is why our visual system has heuristics that you know doesn't you know take in all the complexity in the world, but it you know kind of just regularizes certain visual features. But this is why we fall for visual illusions. It's because uh, you know these are imperfect. They get us to you know the right solution most of the time, but uh, you know they can also lead us astray as well. Sorry, Prince, what were you saying? Oh, I was just gonna say. These heuristics, we're crapping on them now, but there's a reason why there's 7 billion of us existing and surviving now is because we had these heuristics. Evolutionarily, mm -hmm. these heuristics make perfect sense, Shane. Oh, I've seen yeah. this red little fruit thing enough times in the jungle that it must be safe for me to eat. And hence availability equals safe equals I should eat this. Oh, strawberries, they can't kill me. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what Matt said earlier is brilliant. We are just not capable of dealing with the complexities. And unfortunately, our biology, biology has not evolved to deal with that complexity. We're still working in with perhaps an outdated system that is yes. using these heuristics that helped us survive for millennia. And here we are under. I think I think the humans evolutionary mismatches with our abruptly modern world is the single greatest threat <laughs> to all of humanity and it's hard to get people informed about that because uh, even, wait, you, even people that are into evolution are usually like okay we started standing upright cool i get it and don't understand nah. how our brains evolved yeah as, as a tactician and this might be a scary slope for some of the people out there. Um, there are certain incentives for certain parties to use these heuristics in good ways and bad ways. Mm -hmm. It's just that why isn't there a popular video of someone with polio? So that way you're like, I'm scared shitless. I'm getting the polio vaccine. Like mm -hmm. you, these heuristics are a form of our biology and you use them for good or bad. And Matt and I, certainly want to use it for good but it also is kind of creepy to think about hey the net good the, the net good we can do will be better if cdc and all these other companies understood these heuristics and fought all this false stuff with mm -hmm. their version of optimizing for the heuristic as well and they're not doing that right mm -hmm. the scientific community is grossed out by marketing and grossed out by pr and it's just it's just it's just it just always has had friction and then you have these political parties or sub 
cultures that gain a lot from it by optimizing for these things. And that's why that's one of the many, it's a complex problem, but that's where we are. So think about what would happen if the CDC hired a badass neuromarketer and a badass PR firm. How can we use this for good to actually bring that about? And that is a possibility. It's just, that's not their core skill set. And here we are, right? We're fighting yeah. against all that because well, no this one is what I a research paper, right? This is so, what I tell people. And, and this is, we have plenty of things on this show that are, you know, to the average, to the average person, it's true that you aren't there. There's something that are, you, you may not ever have a use for on, on a given episode. Um, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe I have a kangaroo researcher on or something like that in a couple, <laughs> in a couple of weeks, you're maybe you're never go. And so like, sure, you could impress people with your kangaroo facts at a party or something like that. But when it comes to the kind of stuff that's in your, in your book, uh, the, here's another thing that I'm just, and I say that I've said this on the show before, just so listeners listening for the first time, don't think I'm just blowing smoke when I say this, because I have you guys on and you have this book. I, I've said this over and over again, you guys are, you know, deeply curious about this stuff, do all these fantastic studies, learn all of these wonderful things that can help guide our consumption toward ways that are more in line with our well-being, more in line with what we actually want out of, out of life for cheaper. And, and, you know, everyone cares about their wallet in one way or another. And, and then it doesn't get out there and no one reads it. And you know who reads every damn paper you guys will ever read, right? Is marketers. Marketers read all of those papers. And, and that's what you're up against as a consumer that if you don't, if you don't take charge and inform yourself, that's what you're up against every time you go outside. Even when you inform yourself, it's still, I remember listening to a Dan Ariely audiobook all about like buying junk food when you're tired or whatever. And, you know, and, and I'm pulling up to a gas station. I just got done hearing this thing and I go in there and I'm like, don't do it. Don't do it. Shane. I bought more candy than I've ever bought in my entire life. <laughs> I'm with you. Happens look, to the best of us. That's, and we're, dude, we are so passionate about this. And you hit a nail on the head. So I'm about to go off on a rant right now. The, yeah, do it. We're doing our best to everything we've done in both of our lives work to put in this book for consumers, right? Yeah. But we don't want to vilify marketers because we also want to change the culture there. Okay. Mm -hmm. So um, we teach this stuff, but we also talk about the fact that how is it that doctors take a Hippocratic oath, but marketers don't? How is it that that's not a ingrained part of what you do as marketers, right? And that's part of what this is. The answer for bad marketing isn't no marketing. It's better yeah. marketing. And, yeah. and, and, and Matt and I, our life's mission is yes, educate consumers, but not to hate marketers, but to appreciate marketers. And yeah. Educate marketers because unless you work at the 95th percentile of companies that have 20 Matt Johnsons and 20 Prince Goomans with better names, obviously, who are able to construct these things, you don't actually know the impact of your A-B test. 
You don't know why the blue add to cart button sold more than the yellow one. You just know that it did. And you go on about the rest of your life, marketing your way to Andy AB test success. But ultimately, most marketers are also unaware of the psychological and the neuroscientific impact of what they do. And right. ultimately, ultimately, what do we want? As a marketer, I want to create dope shit that makes people fall in love with right? Yeah. Brands, experiences, things. I don't want them to be addicted to consumerism. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm passionate about creating great experiences and products. And as a consumer, and I'm not unique in this, I want to fall in love with products, man. Right? Like mm -hmm. that's what I want to do. But ultimately there is this friction in between that you very well outlined. And, and Matt and I want to get rid of that friction by working with both sides. I, we don't mm. want to give away the neuroscience of why you line up for iPhones right. uh, or, or why you, or why you tune in every week to freaking, you know, the new season of stranger things or whatever the hell it might be, but maybe you appreciate that. And you actually mm. go, okay, this, you know, this Adidas pop-up that showed up in the middle of freaking San Francisco, that looks like a shoebox. Not only do you know what they're doing, they're using the element of surprise and all these variables, but then maybe instead of going, you're tricking me, you go, you know what? Respect. I want to walk in and, and, and see how you've used all this neuroscience to create this amazing experience for me. Because unless yeah. we move to Papua New Guinea, it ain't going anywhere. We just need to change the culture on the marketing side. And we need to change the understanding of consumers. And last line on this is think about user experience, right? The user experience was the second evolution of marketing. Marketing takes a lot from the scientific community. And we, you know, as marketers, we think, oh, hey, we do research, focus groups and surveys, we're scientific. Cool, we were, 50s, 60s, 70s, that's what happened. Evolving over to user experience, we got better at user experience. We made life easier for consumers. And yes, it made life easier for us as sellers of things. But ultimately, the average consumer knows so much more about user experience. They might not objectively be able to tell me why they prefer using a Mac over Windows, but it, the answer is user experience. That level of engagement is what we're after. We want the user, to, the, the average human to know psychology and neuromarketing at a level that they can appreciate it like we do with user experience, which is clearly a great an analogy where both sides are winning, right? No one oh, wants yeah. to use a crappy interface, but that's just only to digital interfaces. But neuroscience goes way beyond digital interfaces. And that's the world that I personally want to live in. And that's the world that Matt wants to live in. And we're combining our skill set to help do our part in as tiny little, uh, to move the needle tiny little bit in that direction. Yeah. I mean, there is, there's, there is, um, it, marketing is its own art form and there is, it, it is, there's a reason why so many people watch the Super Bowl just for the ads. And th there's, uh, there's uh, like some, someone you guys might get a kick out of. Um, uh, uh, there's this guy, this comic friend of mine, Duncan Trussell. Have you ever heard of him? Mm -hmm. uh, he, it doesn't matter. But he, if you just listen to the, he's super funny and, and very verbally fluent and bright guy, but he's also just a ridiculous, um, a, a hyper creative human being. And he, he has these, uh, he has the, the beginning of his episodes. I don't, I don't, I don't listen to podcasts, so I'm not sure how often he actually does this, but, and you got to find the right one, but he does 
um, he does his ads in the beginning and his ads for a product can be like 30 minutes long sometimes. And he's written like it, it it's like, you think you're like listening to the Lord of the Rings on audiobook or something like that. It's like this whole, it's like comparing going to Amazon to like trudging through target or something like that is like going through Mordor and all. And it's, <laughs> It's so much fun that I, I once spent, spent an entire day just listening to his ads um, and, and actually playing them for someone else, not even listening to the podcast, just listening to his ads. And there there's so much fun to be had. So I love that. I mean, it, it, it sounds it does sound a little bit like naive to, to me i will say it's definitely an ideal i would love to see where where like let the most creative win terrific and we show appreciation for that and less of the like sliminess um but i will say as someone that used to view all of marketing as a slimy thing before i got really into behavioral economics and stuff uh, as a as a comic you write these bios early on and it's so cringy because you're just like, and yeah. the funniest and you like these superlatives and, and the, uh, these like grandiose uh, uh, ways of describing things like uh, new, great, terrific, you know? And, but instead I started writing very specific descriptions of what my shows were like. Like this is exactly what you are getting in the show so one if you didn't like the show well you didn't read and that would sometimes happen like you did not read what you did not see that there was going to be a scientist on stage giving a 15 minute science talk in the middle of my comedy show and now you're upset that that guy's not telling jokes or whatever but what it did was it drew the specific demographic of people that I really wanted and really appreciated that because there's no way you can do a show like that at just a general comedy club. No, like, hey, I'm going to have this guy get up and do a uh, lecture quick <laughs> <laughs> and we're, gonna, we're all going to stop laughing for 15 minutes. But then I'm going to riff on it. It'll be good. But, It'll be um, good. So, yeah, I think. I mean, I think that's a beautiful example, Shane, because I think, you know, that illustrates another really crucial point, which is, you know, the, the line between marketer and consumer is becoming more and more porous. Uh, you know, so if you go and see a movie, you know, COVID opens up and, you know, you go and see a movie and then you tell your friends about it or you tweet about it, uh, you know, are you a consumer? Are you a marketer there? I mean, that's the most potent form of marketing there is, is word of mouth. Right. And you yourself, Shane, I mean, brands don't have to be these big, massive, you know, three quarters of a trillion dollar market cap, you know, publicly traded companies, you know, you're a brand, you know, people are, you know, subscribing to your channel and you have an image and there's a demographic as you're talking about, you have a consumer persona. I mean, that's, that's brand, yeah. that's marketing, my friend. Oh, I remind uh, myself so every day in the mirror, I look in the mirror <laughs> and I say, you're a brand. <laughs> no, totally. <laughs> over and over again, I remind myself. No, of totally. But, but but what I mean by that is is you know it's it's democratizing. You know, and uh, you know I don't think we should think of marketing as this like very far and distant thing that happens to us. Like we participate in the process. Yeah. It's an organic, uh, you know, back and forth. It's it's there's more interconnectivity you know, really than ever before. And so the more we understand about it, the more we can appreciate it. I think we should, as Prince says, 
you know, marketers want to deliver amazing products and experiences. We as consumers want to consume them. Uh, so let's let's appreciate it. Let's Andy Warhol this shit and yeah. really love brands, appreciate what they be a be a marketing connoisseur. It'll well, enhance yeah. your life, I think. It's it's wonderful that you say that as I'm as I'm now working with a professional artist who does like just cranks out amazing pieces for every episode of my new podcast and everything. I'm very lucky. But there is something to be said for, you know, if 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 people rise to the occasion, then marketers can, too. It's it's like it's like the difference between, you know, um cs watching like csi or something like this run-of-the-mill cookie cutter all right every episode's going to be the same or whatever and then uh the difference between that and um i don't know like the usual suspects or some like classic thing where you know they they knew where you were thinking it was going and all of the and and they got to take you on all these twists and turns because you knew a bit more. You, if you watch like a Christopher Ryan or a Christopher Ryan, that's a Christopher uh, Nolan, Christopher, <laughs> Christopher, Christopher Ryan's a swinger who uh, uses um, bonobos to uh, sell people on swinging. Um, that's a different Nolan, episode. Different episode. A different episode. Christopher, Christopher Nolan has these very, he does like this great mix of, He's my favorite because he does this great mix of these exceptionally complex ideas. And he's not just throwing out fancy words to like, if you watch Westworld and they use the word heuristics, like a lot of people don't use, they're using it correctly. And uh, whereas like a CSI or something, will just like say fancy sounding things. Here's our impression of what a smart person sounds like. No one knows any better. And, but and then and then Christopher Nolan's also able to give like the shoot him up and like you don't need to think, OK, there's fun explosions and stuff. But, yeah, if people if people rise to the challenge, they'll they'll get better music, they'll get better everything. And, they, and they'll get that in their marketing experience as well. And, and you said it best, man, like people consume. I, I, and Matt and I don't like the term consumer. We have to use it because it communicates something certain. It is dehumanizing to call humans consumers because just kind of putting them in a bucket. But it, it, yeah, people. You, also, if you put a number after it, uh, you are a consumer <laughs> five hundred and thirty-seven. <laughs> number some way of doing that. <laughs> I mean, that's that's funny as hell, dude. Uh, but <laughs> when you consumers rise to it, but marketers also have to do yeah. their part, right? Um, right. So. There's there's a quote. I think it was Bill Hicks, dude. Bill Hicks said, "If you're in advertising, go kill yourself." He said that on stage, mm -hmm. I think, one time. Um, and that I get is, the sentiment, <laughs> <laughs> right? And 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 that is what marketers are up against. So yeah, right, hey, right, right. Mr. and Miss Marketer, do something about the people who feel that way about marketing. Right, right, right. But also, consumers can't walk around and just assume public policy is going to change on their own and keep, oh yeah, my bad, I'm using Instagram for free, but I want to go and bitch about how Instagram is using my data and doing X, Y, and Z with it. Well, do you want to fucking pay $10 a month for Instagram? No, yeah, yeah. then they're not a nonprofit. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah, um, right. But, but, but something you said just now made me think about art and marketing and not in the CSI shitty kind of way. Did you like House of Cards, Shane? Uh, yeah, it got a little ridiculous. Um, right. But season one was fantastic. Season one sure. was fantastic. And I stopped watching after season one. So I, I have my memories of season one. 
What's trippy about that, and why I'm bringing it up here, is art in that case was working hand in hand with marketing, right? So mm-hmm. Netflix didn't just cast it as is based on whatever freaking <laughs> takes to get casted on, on, on a, on a long time show. They mm-hmm. looked at all the data and created storyline and themes and hired certain actors based on data. So, but it was mm-hmm. very much in the not CSI type of art and mm-hmm. And that might threaten some of my artist friends and rightfully mm-hmm. so, because it takes the purity of art away. Um, but it is at least to me, an example of art working well with marketing to create something artistic and of yeah. value that is unlike CSI with what, whatever his face is and shitty punchline puts on the glasses, you know, she'll never be on another blub, you know, it's the opposite <laughs> yeah. of that, right? Like, oh yeah, beauty pageant queen done. Oh, she's not going to, you know, whatever that punchline is, is way beyond that. So well, I, that I, is I, interesting. The, oh, I cut you off. Go on. No, no, no that's it. I mean, I, I just wanted to convey that as, as an example of, of marketing in the most advanced sense, data science-based marketing that chose the cast the themes to create a TV show that many people love, at least for one or two seasons. Yeah, well, hopefully it'll evolve with AI in that way as well, where instead of just a, because I I think right now AI can A-B test things pretty well and get a sense of things. But I I feel like there's some complexity that maybe gets lost in that. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm I'm sure there's a lot of uh, real blind spots that occur when when something is put together that way. But um, there's... I, I have the last couple nights I've been listening to um, classical music complaint, uh, composed by AI and and it's mm. fantastic. It's as good as any classical music that there is. And uh, I I definitely um, I, I like the I, I like the idea of being able to use data to tell people what uh, to get to give people kind of what they like when it's also aligned with like your art I, i'm not being harmed like, by classical music it's help it's helping me it's helping me write without being distracted or or whatever you know i don't as far as i can tell i i think i'm pretty far from getting addicted and like i need more of this ai classical music these demons have got me <laughs> but um well what and, do you, and just, I, I yeah just as much as you know house of cards is an example of full-on collaboration between art and, and science, or at least data science. I think it's it's just just for fun, I think this is an interesting nugget to share, and I'm very curious what you think, being a comedian. Um, the first album, Shakespeare, by Anthony Jesselnik, we use that in the book for a reason as an example. We won't tell you what chapter, because we actually want you to read the book completely. But, ah. <laughs> ah, damn. Um, but there's this thing called uh, an was that a Zignarnik? Zignarnik, a little bit, a little bit. All right, all right. Um, but but what I why we use that example because we wanted to illustrate the idea of a surprise or a violation of expectation, as a neuroscientist, Dr. Johnson would say. And mm. and we used Anthony Jesselnik as an example because a we're stand-up comedy nerds and we we love and appreciate art and we try not to overanalyze it 
But Anthony Jeselnik, especially if you look at the album Shakespeare, the king of surprise, right? Yeah. You know it's a setup and you know there's going to be a punchline and you know it's going to be surprising, but God damn it, and you don't still. see it coming the first time you listen to it. Ever, ever, ever. And the second album, great. And yeah, whatever, reviews for the next album. Yeah. Anthony Jeselnik is, and if you list, if you put people listening to Anthony Jeselnik in an EEG, it looks like freaking an octopus is sucking on your head. You can measure the surprise at the level of the brain and a stand-up comedian like Anthony Jeselnik can teach us a lot about this super nerdy concept called N400, which is the measurement of surprise based on brain waves in your head, right? Mm. And I just really like that example. I just want to throw it at you to see what you thought, but that's that, N400 is the measurement of surprise. And Anthony Jeselnik ranks very high on that, you know? Yeah, that's really interesting. I, I, I used to, we came up around the same time and I used to have a similar style there there's something i i eventually got away from um because it's also combines like shock value stuff and i yep. eventually yep. i eventually started thinking that the shock value stuff was like a hair juvenile not 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 that justin luck is doing it in a juvenile way but i i was worried that i was going to become more and more um juvenile with my um humor <laughs> which is fine sometimes but um but but there's also there's also this kind of there there because the surprise is one thing, but then there's another, um, like the satisfying ending or whatever is really nice too. the the two The two jokes that I that I like are when that joke was written exactly how it was supposed to be written, like that ended exactly like mathematically. That's how it was supposed oh. to be written. And then the yeah. other one is like, how the hell did this person come up, come with, up that? with that? Like, yeah. um, there one that I can't even remember the guy's name, but it just stuck in my head so much, which was, it's the dumbest joke. It's so funny though. It's uh, I, I like uh, I like to call um, things by their full names, like instead of Bobby Pins, I call them Robert Pinelskis. <laughs> so stupid but it's like how in the world what made you think of that and i i like that but there's also this familiarity which is so now combine combine comedy with social media stuff and now you have this this kind of we were talking about this with coca-cola where you start to form this bond over time like there's this guy tony baker on instagram he has like a couple million followers or something like that now when i first saw a couple of his videos they made me laugh. And I was like, yeah, this, that's, that's pretty funny. I don't even think I followed them the first couple times that I saw uh, some. And most of them are just silly 15 second, like viral animal video that he just narrates in a funny way. And kind of like, oh, that's kind of easy or whatever. I didn't have a full appreciation for it. And then uh, over time, I really got to know his voice and his mm. like he'll every time a cat like hits another cat, he always calls them uh, like the bippity baps or something like that. Come and get some baps. And like the first time you hear that, it's not that funny. But like the 40th time you hear it, you're like ready for like, you know, the, the cat's going to get its baps and stuff. And and now it's just I, I follow him and it's it's probably one of the in terms of social media it's it's one of the things that i look forward to most in 
I can't wait till his next little 30 second thing. And I'm going to sit and watch, watch every single one. What do you, what do you think about this in relation to that? This might be getting a little, I don't know, far out there, but as we kind of build these relationships with these brands, some of them are human. Some of them are Coca-Cola. Some of them are these subjective realities. Um, and what do you think about, like you kind of end up falling in love with this thing with Nike or, or whatever, and it becomes like a part of your identity. What do you, you, you guys probably, you guys know about the Dunbar number? <laughs> The yeah, idea the Dunbar number. The, yeah, yeah. The, the social number. Yeah, yeah. The yep. idea of like, there's uh, our ancestors would have ran into like or got to know well, hundred people, one hundred and seventy-five people, yeah. or something like that. Do you do you think that some of this stuff is taking up kind of space in our in our Dunbar number? Like we're losing a little bit of our relationships with our families and friends and stuff because we're subconsciously kind of forming this relationship with Reebok or whatever it is. I it's I'll, I'll take the Dunbar piece and then the branding piece, Matt, jump in whenever you want. The Dunbar number is fascinating, but it's also written, that you know, it, it, we have 7 billion people in the world. So, um, and, and, and technology has been this ridiculous environmental factor. So Dunbar number right. is, you know, you only have X amount of relationships at a time. But wow. the Dunbar number was researched at a time where there wasn't a Facebook, right? So mm -hmm. you meet someone bar hopping in Vegas and now you're friends on Facebook. And now you've seen this person get married and they have kids. You're not friends with them. You're not strangers. So the Dunbar number might be the the outermost part of this circle, but now there's an extra circle that our environment has provided us and perhaps mm -hmm. multiple circles beyond that. If you really want to talk about influencers and people's relationship with influencers, we can get into that in a second if you want. But you said something about brands that is so intuitive, man. Brands were <laughs> created to personify something that is not human. And, and marketers created this and you can Google the brand personality wheel to get an idea for what that is. I'm a hero. I am a rebel. I am a savior, right? Uh, uh, I, am a, I am a classic museum brand. I am a brand of the moment, right? The, uh, people aren't buying Supreme. Do you, because how wanna... do you know everything that I say to myself in the mirror every, every, every morning? My, oh, all, you know all of my mantras. Have you been eavesdropping? Yeah, I've been neuromarketing you this whole time. Um, so the personification of companies as brands was created to sell more, right? Uh -huh. If you relate to the rebel mentality, you're probably going to pay $200 for a white tee with a Supreme logo on it. And because Supreme isn't just a italicized Verdana font logo, it means something and it mm -hmm. is personified in your brain as so. Um, the thing is, how far does that go? And this is where, quite frankly, brands are shitting their pants because what worked back then, consumers are waking up to it. And now they're going, again, it's subconscious, but it's okay. If you are taking on the hero brand personality, then be a damn hero. Do something about the social unrest that's happening right now. If brands are people, consumers want them to be more like 
people and have opinions mm -hmm. on things. And this is something that brand managers were not prepared for because they can continue being the rebel and keep doing what they're doing. But ultimately, now you got to own this image you've spent billions of dollars creating over the last few decades and, and do it in a way that is authentic. And then mm -hmm. you look at Nike, the hero. Republicans don't buy Nike, buys Nike, buy Nikes too, right? And then here they go do the Colin Kaepernick thing. But that is brilliant. They're mm -hmm. actually owning, and I'm not saying Nike is perfect. They have plenty of issues internally that you can read all about that. But you look at Nike as a brand, they created a brand of heroes and gods, right? Mm -hmm. They don't sponsor small-time athletes. They sponsor the Kobe Bryants and the LeBron James of the world, and they're the heroes. So when something mm -hmm. bad happens, you proverbially look up to heroes. And Nike mm -hmm. said, we're going to take a stance, right? Yeah. And, and brands are I now- I remember seeing someone cutting up a Nike sock. Did you see that video by chance? It was like, so Dude, don't crazy. burn those Jordans. Give them to me. <laughs> I'm cutting the, the Nike swoosh <laughs> oh. off of the top of <laughs> my sock. Like, dude, just throw the socks out. What are you gonna wear those socks out now? It was a terrible cut. It's like they hadn't used a scissor since Scissors fourth Scissors forever. It yeah, was I saw that, I saw it. The burning jerseys, <laughs> the, the chopping up Jordans. I'm like, uh, go for it, whatever. That's but, great know, marketing, though. That's still it, that's that helped mar that helped Nike almost as much as there. It did. It did. But to go back, well, now to I have saying, to wear Nike. I don't want to be some fool that doesn't know how to use a scissors when he's cutting his <laughs> socks out of weird. Nike's like, and, and Nike launches a scissor, a scissor brand as a result. <laughs> Nike yeah. scissors. Nike scissors cut faster, stronger, and better. Um, but to just underline that point. Brands cannot get away with just using a personality anymore unless you're going to own that personality in a consistent way. And, mm. and like I said, brand managers shitting their pants, but, but I don't think that's unfortunate. I think, look, you built this, you did this now own it. Right. And then brands internally are envious. They look at Nike and they're envious. They look at Patagonia, sorry, Patagucci, and they're envious because like, oh my God, they have this authentic, they care about the environment. And now they're selling sweatpants for 200 bucks and people are buying them, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's because they owned the brand that they authentically created forever ago. They took all the Trump tax bennies and they put them back towards environmental conservancy because that's how authentic they were, are. And I love Ben and Jerry's, bunch of stoners doing shrooms and smoking weed and then created this tiny, tiny ice cream shop that Hagen Dazs tried to shut down back in the day they're a total story and they're the rebel brand through and through. And they got arrested during the black lives matter protests because they're owning that through and through. So mm -hmm. the, the era of brands being authentic in their personality, isn't enough. The personality, mm -hmm. the consumers have caught on to that. So do better or don't try to be a brand play. It is amazing how fast companies and marketers need to evolve because you have, uh, you know, you have your AAA or whatever, and it's like, perfect. People are going to go into the yellow pages. They're going to look for a locksmith. They're going to flip to the start of it. That's right. Boom, big page, AAA. <laughs> and, and, and then yellow pages go away. And it, now there's internet. Now there's, there's uh, let's put a flashing blinker on, uh, a banner on there. And then people have, banner up. blindness over time and start or, yeah. uh, uh, averting their eyes to the blinky thing because they know they aren't interested and it's an eyesore anyway.
Yeah. Oh, and you got yeah. ad blockers now. So lazy marketing ain't going to work if you have ad blockers installed in whatever 46% or whatever the number is. It keeps going higher and higher every month. Um, so you have to do something that's more authentic or genuinely, genuinely engaging, right? And yeah. and there there are neuroscientific principles you can apply to be engaging and authenticity is one element of it. But, you know, how do you measure authenticity? It ain't A-B testing, Right you have to have a deeper understanding of, of, of neuroscience and people's psychology and you have to internally commit as a culture, as a, we talk about brands as like this out, outside things. What we don't get to talk about enough because all these conversations happen within a boardroom is what happens when you bring this up internally to your CEO and your CMO and go, yo, we got to do this. And it's going to cost us 10 to 15% revenue. We have to say, fuck the shareholders, but we have to do this in order to survive the next 20 years mm -hmm. in the world we're in, but also maybe perhaps, I don't know, it's the right damn thing to do. Those conversations are happening more and more in boardrooms now. And some people have the internal fortitude to change that culture. And some people don't, and we'll see which brands do what thoughts and prayers aren't enough anymore in the world that we live in mm -hmm. for brands. I, I have a, uh, I think, I think that Matt, the neuroscientist is going to like this, but, uh, cause I, I'm kind of like a bit ahead of things. I'm on the next, I'm on, I think I'm in like the future of what marketing is, Ooh, which yellow, is yellow I, pages 3.0. Oh yeah. <laughs> no, it's something like that. What I do is I try sometimes and then other times I don't try very hard at all. And it's a roller coaster. I'm triggering those intermittent rewards in people. Like, what? Oh, what are we? What Shane are we getting this time? What mood is he in? Is he gonna give us the goods? Is he gonna? Is he gonna let us down? What's gonna happen? <laughs> what, what do you? What do you think? Yeah, that, I think that's, I'm onto that's something. Awesome. No, totally. I mean, I think, uh, no, I think we, we, we can, we can jest, but I think, you know, that there's something there for sure that, that people to a certain extent, you know, do appreciate consistency. They do appreciate, uh, you know, there being something that they can sort of count on that they know what they're getting, but generally, uh, so I think a lot of, uh, and this is for people as well as brands, uh, you know, when they deliver too narrowly on that consistency, uh, they don't fully harness uh, really the science of, of likability that we do actually appreciate a lot of, of variability. We do, as you say, you don't want intermittent rewards. You do want to be uh, Anthony Jeselnik uh, to a certain extent. You want to have that kind of pleasurable surprise. You want to, uh, you know, come in and, and be a little bit uncertain about, you know, how things are, are going to go. The great thing is, is we, we kind of touched on this already in talking about art is that humans have this very natural way of seeing the essence of things. So Shane, even if you shaved your beard, you got a haircut, you changed up your microphone setup, you'd still be Shane, you know? If Prince, you know, puts on- Not, not without this mic, not with this, without this <laughs> specific far, microphone far, setup, far, okay, I, am, okay. I am nobody. Beard, beard, beard yes, microphone, no. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, there, there's, a, there's, there's something that's, that's, you know, the essence of Shane, uh, transcends your physical constituents. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is this uh, concept in social psychology called essentialism. So you see the essence in things. Mm -hmm. You see the essence in people. You see the essence in, in objects. And so, you know, we understand there's an essence of Shane's show. And that doesn't change. And so that really gives people the freedom, which I don't think they fully realize, to 
go out there, you know, a, a little bit more, try things, you know, throw some variability at people, use intermittent rewards, whatever the case may be, uh, because people aren't going to not think you're Shane because we, we automatically grapple with the, uh, we're able to automatically, you know, connect with the, with the essence. Mm. I, um, I, I'm going to have to have next week's episode. It's going to be a doozy because this one was too good. I got to, I, I got to keep those expectations. I got to keep that roller coaster going. Well, part of my essence is I, I don't end things when I should. That's it always keeps listeners hanging. Like, is he going to, Oh, that was pretty good. That'd be a good time to end. Oh, he's going on a little long again. Um, uh, that's why they keep tuning in each week. I have something that I need to ask you about. Cause I haven't, I haven't, uh, I didn't read it. I just flipped through, saw some words. It's a subject that I enjoy and I haven't got to talk about in some time. Saw the word mirror neurons, got very <laughs> excited. Um, cause here's the, here's the deal. Mirror neurons, my sense of things. People got real excited about these mirror neurons. And then for a while, there's people like, oh, these mirror neurons are overblown and sure they're interesting and everything, but everything's just mirror neurons. Forget about those mirror neurons. This is oversold. And I've stood by mirror neurons. I've said, <laughs> no, no, mirror neurons are fantastic. They're interesting and they are damned important. And I haven't gotten it up. I haven't talked about mirror neurons in a while. Hit me with some mirror neurons. Tell the listeners what mirror neurons are. Yeah, I, I can I can definitely live with this uh, this final verdict on mirror neurons. So mirror neurons have to do with a, a concept of, of crucial importance to us as social creatures, which is social cognition. So how do we understand the minds of other people? So we can only really truly understand our own minds. We have an own internal experience. And we're trying to understand somebody else all we can do is model that so i'm hoping prince is paying attention right now he's nodding but he could be thinking about whatever i'm modeling i'm making assumptions that's what our, our social cognitive processes are doing uh and it turned out that there are some specialized regions in the brain for social cognition that not only uh model people's inner experiences but also their intentions and also their behavior as well uh and this these are called mirror neurons so there's, you know, some truth to the interest of mirror neurons. There's some uh, sort of overhype, I, I would say. So we knew that as social creatures, you know, social psychologists have known about this for decades, that we must have some mechanism for social cognition, right? Because we're able to do this. We're able to understand other people's minds, despite the fact that we can't experience it directly. So we know we must model this. And so we know that this happens at the level of the brain. So that's already established. What's really interesting about mirror neurons is it seems to be, if this is the idea, that it's, it's represented at the level of individual neurons, individual cells. Um, and it's really getting that precise. And uh, this, so, you know, basically if I'm writing, you know, a, a, you know, a piece on a piece of paper, uh, and then I'm witnessing you writing on a piece of paper, these mirror neurons are activated to the same extent and actually at the same frequency and, and amplitude uh, that you are. Uh, and that is sort of the additional emphasis that mirror neurons provide. So people sort of took this idea, they got very, very excited about it. First, it was found in non-human primates, then it was replicated in, uh, in humans with their imaging technology. Uh, people got very, very excited about it. There's still quite a bit of excitement. I think really where things got off the rails a little bit is in trying to use mirror neurons to explain 
everything, mm -hmm. straight up everything. People wanted to use mirror neurons to describe, you know, this is why humans have language and non-human primates don't have language. This is why mm -hmm. uh, children with autism have autism and mm -hmm. people who have a, a typical uh, neurodevelopmental trajectory don't have autism. This is why, uh, you know, it inserts grandiose theory here. Uh, and so I think mirror neurons are a crucial puzzle to understanding sociality, social cognition. Uh, but I do think we have to sort of treat some of the claims with, uh, you know, a, a bit of a bit of caution as well. Well, I think they're absolutely everything. So don't listen to Matt, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, one element, though, and that jump in if you think I'm uh, overstepping here. One thing that is related to mirror neurons is empathy. Right. We're not just replicating yeah. Matt's writing style when he's writing. When Matt cries or laughs, mirror neurons happen to be the mechanism of me feeling that his pain and his pleasure. Right. So empathy is really my um, um, my takeaway. Uh, one particular takeaway of mirror neurons. We empathize with humans and there is a quirk in how we empathize with humans. Um, we really talk about how deep this whole thing goes in the book. So if, if you really want to get into it, you can, but I'll give, I'll give a, uh, I'll give a, I'll give a teaser for it. Our human empathy system is kind of broken. We empathize more with one person than we do with plural persons. Mm -hmm. So, um, and how this connects to marketing is when you put the U S Olympic team on the cereal box, you're actually doing this service. You should pick one Olympian of the, uh, of the swim team or the running team or insert name of team here on the, on the cereal box, because we are biologically inclined to empathize more with a single person. And this has been tested many and many times over. So if you do thumbnails, include both of us, but for other guests, you get um, a single person face is going to get more empathy or connection. Right. Um, and, and that is something that isn't well known. And that is something um, that isn't over hyped at all is we empathize. So if you want to donate money for a cause, um, and this is actually, this is real research and, and validated with, uh, with further research is you put the photo of one person. Here's a child, hungry child in need. Here's a group of hungry children in need. Logically you should care more about five hungry children than you should one. But when you actually test that people donate more money to the single child. They even replicated that, but putting the photo of the same single child in with the other four kids, and it still got more donations for that child. And you've seen this over and over. Um, and the implications of this, though, are big. Implications of this um, still speak for why we fall for, or rather buy into brands that have endorsements. It mm -hmm. speaks for why, um, you know. Why uh, we think we need a president like yeah we'll have yeah, 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 yeah what about the person yeah. be in yeah, charge you, of put that guy totally. in charge of all of it <laughs> Dude, shane get out of my head that's that was literally what i was going to say because that person yeah. is a figurehead right so yeah. but in many ways you can either fight against that biology good luck or you can optimize for that biology right if you have one person mm -hmm. who is the figurehead for all of america then freaking groom said person to know that what he or she says is going to impact and have an impression globally on 7 mm -hmm. billion people looking at you. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's why, um, there is this, 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 this obsession with Elon Musk. There's this obsession with insert name here. We, Steve Fauci. Jobs, 
Fauci Fauci isn't all of virology and epidemiology, (laughs) but people are like this guy. It's like one person that like, yeah, it's. But imagine if Fauci had a PR team and a neuromarketer discussing strategy to address the concerns that Fauci clearly gives a shit about. Then you use our empathy, our incomplete or our empathy glitch for good. Right. So probably the most important question that I've asked the entire episode is for the thumbnail for this one, should it be half of each of you as one person? Will that do anything for people? I feel like that, that could let's work. Test Let's test it. Let's in, in, do the, it. in the spirit of trying things and, uh, you know, intermittent rewards. Yeah, let, let's try it. And uh, we'll, you, we'll combine you two and then we'll put my beard and we'll send you our headshots you just chop them in half and just stitch matt and prince together and and throw your beard on there i think i think now that you put it up here listeners you heard it if you're listening to this and the thumbnail of this is not the three of us combined to one really freaky ugly organism then you can call out shane <laughs> they already i've trained them to know sometimes they're gonna get that sweet thumbnail other times we're mailing it in um <laughs> keep your expectations low around here and sometimes once in a while you're gonna be very satisfied um I've, i'm super i was super satisfied to have you guys on you guys were absolutely terrific i hope you the listeners will check out blind sight the mostly hidden ways marketing shapes our brains you hear i feel like i had i feel like i have like a pretty solid radio voice when i read that would did, did you guys think that when i should i do it one more time and you give me notes i think blind you should I, blind sight yeah <laughs> Go the <for> mostly <laughs> see now when i tried to do it did he hear it went off it wasn't quite there i nailed it the first time and if you go back to the beginning of the episode i nailed it there too we'll do one more take blind sight the mostly <laughs> nope see now it's too much <laughs> now it's too much the mostly hidden ways marketing reshapes our brains there nailed there it. we that's, go there that's we go the audiobook version right there oh. matt johnson and prince gooman joining us thank you so much guys for joining me and um i hope everyone checks out your book you guys are absolutely terrific i hope to have you on again sometime and Shane, right back at you. One thing, if I can add, is yeah, anything. We're, what do you guys? We are plug? super serious about addressing both the consumer, sorry, the buyer, the all of us aspect of this whole thing, and the marketer aspect. But we can't do this shit alone, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're what you're doing as being the distributor of knowledge is as important, if not more, than what we're doing. So can I can we get a little badge for me that says distributor? <laughs> distributor. You're you're a brand distributor. Oh boy, I'm whipping that sucker out in public. What, hey, but why dude, is it? This why is won't this guy though, shut right? up? Like you know, um, I hope my you badge know. Out. I hope you know that you creating this platform and you give a shit means a lot to us. It doesn't uh, oh, matter well, what books we write. It doesn't, how hard we try to change marketing behavior and buyer behavior. It's not until people like you give us an opportunity to talk about it openly and quite frankly, completely transparently that people yeah. listen. So 
For real. Oh. Thank you so much, man. It, it helps. It helps tremendously oh. to, to get this out there. Uh, I mean, you, uh, you know how annoying it is for me to have the weight of the world on my shoulders. Like I want, <laughs> oh, like that's... I want all that, but it comes with a sweet badge. <laughs> sweet so, badge. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you, you guys are absolutely terrific. I, I'm very grateful that you came on. Um, and, uh, and, and thank you listeners for being such wonderful, curious people. We'll see you next week. Uh, sh- Shane, yeah. do you have marketers on that listen, you think? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Do you mind yeah, if I, I uh, mentioned popner.com, if they actually care oh, about this stuff? Oh, geez, how to use yeah. I, I'm glad that I was about to hit stop. That's why I was looking around. I was about to hit the stop button. Oh, yeah, yeah. Do you have anything yeah. else that you want to plug? Yeah, just... Uh, oh, I was, I'm, so, I'm so happy that you threw that in because usually like listeners don't hear uh, what happens after the show which is where I tell, I usually tell my guests, usually I hit stop. And then I say, both of you go get lost. I never want to see you again. (laughs) I I was was just thinking that whole thing. Well, well, I'm glad it came out like in the realest way possible too. I love it. No, if there are any marketers in the audience, aspiring marketers, or or this is what you do for a living. um, If you want to learn neuroscience, neuromarketing, how to apply neuroscience to marketing, we teach it and we teach it with a ethical angle. Um, please check out popneuro.com. P-O-P-N-E-U-R-O.com. What are you slinging? You got like some online courses and stuff? We got online Ooh. courses. We have live Ooh. courses and we have certifications. For- well, I'll, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll try to, I'll try to create space maybe in May or something. Mm-hmm. I, cause I take online courses all the time. I just haven't, I haven't taken too many in COVID. I haven't been reading and my life's been a whirlwind of trying to set up new projects and everything, but uh-huh. I would, I would love to take your, your course. And we could have you Dude, back we'd, on. We'd love to have you. We'd love to have you. Yeah. Yeah. Man, yeah let yeah. me know if you want well, we should, the, the pre-recorded yeah, one or, that. or the live one for, if you can put up with us for eight hours a day for three days, let's do this. Oh yeah, I, I would, I would, uh, yeah, for sure. I'd be happy to, th- we'll talk afterwards, but uh, all right. So anyway, where do, where do people go? Oh, I think I lost you. Hello. You still got me? I'll, uh, I'll, I'll, I'll give the, give the website. Yeah. It's uh popneuro.com. So I think maybe pop Prince neuro. is just trying com. to harness our attention by pretending that his computer is frozen. It's a classic neuromarketing technique, uh, but it's, it's popneuro.com. So all the, all the information's up there. I I do like how he threw in those special frozen graphics right at the end. Well, uh, yeah, awesome. Um, thank you both, and I'm hitting stop. All right, everybody. I hope you enjoyed the show. Uh, I I just loved this one. I I'd love to get these guys back on. I hope you check out the book. It's awesome. Links in the description as well as a special link. Two, got a plug for a Patreon supporter. I love this. Uh, I love this system. By the way, lower your expectations. Uh, if 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 you're if you're like gonna support me on on Patreon, hoping you're gonna get a twenty five minute riff on boat carpet, I'm not sure I can replicate that every time. But I do love the idea of of uh, 
supporting people within the community who are supporting me, giving them a shout out um, back. And uh, so in, instead of uh, selling you guys whatever the latest and, and greatest uh, underwear supplement uh, uh, uh thing is uh financial advice uh i'm i'm going to instead just uh support people that do cool things so i had here this is this is amazing first off you guys are adorable all my i do board game nights and stuff on on my patreon and i i already knew because i tour with stand-up science and you know i since i've been since I deviated from doing regular club work, um, which sometimes brings out, you know, not uh, your ideal um, clientele. Since I started doing, um, you know, like finding ways to truly express bigger ideas and and science communication, that sort of thing. The audiences that come along with that are just so much better. It's amazing. They're just amazing people all the time. And so I have one of the mad scientists uh, who signed up. Uh, even he even did a whole year ahead of time. You get a discount if you do sign up for a year in advance on Patreon. On Patreon, and his name is Sahil Shinoy. I actually met him. He came to a uh, game night, played some code names. He's not great at code names. It was his first time. It was his very first time. No pressure, but he's not. He he he's not the best code names player <laughs> ever see. But uh, he, now he's not going to come again. Um, but he's uh, he. So I've been reaching out to people that are a mad scientists or people that have been on Patreon for a long time and being like, hey, do you have your own business? Uh, you know, I was going to give you a shout out. A thank you. Do you have your own thing? And uh, and um, uh, Sahil had listened to how amazing this is. He's like, hey, can you give my mom? Um, a shout out. She has a business on Indiegogo uh, that's starting up. And I'm like, that's, yeah, that's a, adorable. And I'd love to do that. Not thinking when someone's like, hey, will you help me out with like my Kickstarter or whatever? I'm like, oh boy. And so I didn't, I, you know, had low expectations. And this is amazing. This is, a, so this is, uh, it's called Omnipan, high performance modern cookware. But listen to this, guys. There's, she's already has it just starts she already has like three hundred thousand dollars worth of support on indiegogo and has like crazy professional videos and stuff that are um, amazing for it and she's a cook and makes cookbooks and i i I skimmed i i'm a i skim and then i imagine and i come up with ideas and then i prod my ideas for to see if they're logical or if I'm thinking about things in the right way and then find gaps in it. And then I come up with, uh, like, uh, hopefully creative things to say, uh, from that. So if you, by the way, if you're going to end up like, this is going to be, I'm going to tell you guys about it in a minute. Um, and I don't care if you get the Omni pan or what, I'm just going to riff about cookware because that's funny to me. 
Um, but this is, I'm impressed. Uh, so if, if you end up on Shark Tank, this is one of the things that I'm offering. It's not a listed Patreon perk, but if any of my Patreon supporters out there, if your moms end up on Shark Tank uh, with a cool product, send them my way for a little coaching. I want to get in there and coach a little bit because I don't know if you guys watch uh, Free of Charge. Free of Charge. I, I wish I want to go on Shark Tank to pitch me being a Shark Tank consultant because it's the only reality show that I've ever watched that I've uh, enjoyed. And... Um, uh, I guess there's been a couple other that I'm like, yeah, okay, I get it. But Shark Tank is actually, there's there's a real, uh, you know, there's real stakes and there's real, these are real businesses that are really going to be something. And and it's interesting to find, I love inventions. Um, I love thinking of inventions. Uh, uh, mine are too ridiculous. Like I, I like, uh, uh, like a, a full, I want, I want showers to have a full, full air dryer afterwards no more towels you get done you turn off the water and then you just have it's just a bunch of hand dryers and then you just sit there am i gonna make that happen no i'm not gonna make that happen i have a million ideas like that all the time ideas are easy the execution is is the hard part and then the practicalities of how much is this shower what are we talking about here now you're turning in the you're getting uh, like all these new air duct systems in your bathroom and i no idea how it works not going to look into how it works you can have that idea if you want to invent that thing have at it but i respect inventors i think it's awesome and when people actually do think i uh, this podcast just putting together this podcast and especially mind under matter that's a lot more involved holy crap the the amount of like little nonsense things you end up having to deal things you would never think of just endless 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 stuff and and to do that to make an invention from scratch it's in, it's incredible to me so I, first of all i'm impressed second let me tell you about because this is actually up my alley. It's this Omnipan. So basically, what it is is it's is is it's like pan that's everything. It's it's your it's your Tupperware. It's your uh, it's it's uh, microwave safe. It's oven safe. It's for your leftovers. So you just have your one set of cookware to rule them all. Like you're gonna be addicted to this. This is you you'll want to venture to Mordor to get this out of your life but you won't because it's heat resistant and won't melt in mordor um but but you can this is like my i don't you know the weird thing is actually i like doing dishes when i'm doing dishes but when i'm not doing dishes i don't want to do dishes and the less dirty dishes the better they'll add up it's been a thing you know in relationships and stuff. So I try to, I'll, I'll try to use and I reuse the same thing all the time. Uh, I'll have like the same coffee mug for days. Um, I'm not sure if you're supposed to do that, but the point is, is I, I don't know if you've ever been with like a, uh, compulsive shopper. Uh, but I, I dated 
So I was with this girl. I was like rather superficial uh, for a while. So she had a lot of great qualities, but she was also superficial and just like needed to shop stuff and then would like bring me into things all the time. And it, because it was like if she bought something for her, then that's like feeding her shopping addiction. But if she bought something for us then it like eliminated the guilt from her and so she would get these ridiculous that you know like those kitchen stores there's like a new gadget all the time and it's like oh well here's a solar powered blender uh, what no i don't i don't need a solar powered blend i love solar powered things and I love blenders. Why'd you take two things that I love and put them together? This horrible Frankenstein monster that no one has any use for. Why would I want that? And and the kitchen store's just riddled with with things like that. And so that's like the kind of stuff. She, I was with the minimalist. My last serious relationship was a minimalist too. That has its own sort of issues. Like. Oh, we can't we can't replace this rusty pan because that's buying something that's like waste. No. No. I'm not eating, I'm not slowly just scooping rust constantly off this because you think spending $15 on a new pan is a waste of money. So, you know, there's a spectrum. Uh I I happen to be right in the middle perfect every time, but um but the the superficial like shopping addict that I was with for a while. I mean, it was a compulsion. So she'd come home and we fought a lot. We were it was the most relation like we liked fight fighting too much, and uh, and so she'd she'd order she'd get like a a mini pot pie maker. This is a perfect example. A mini pot pie maker show up be like we don't. Why would you get? a mini pot pie maker. And then it makes, then I'm the bad guy. She got something for us. And then anyone like you can't win. Cause uh, the, you know, then she tried to like recruit her friends. And then you sound like you sound like an asshole. If you're like, if you go, Hey, we don't need a, we actually don't, we don't need a mini pot pie maker uh, at all. We don't, we don't need it. Ugh. People are like, what kind of a monster doesn't like mini pot pies? No, I do like mini pot pies. Of course I like mini pot pies. I love all kinds of pot pies. Yes, they're little. They're adorable. You can serve them on a platter. I get that you're imagining how great a mini pot pie maker is, but we live in a two-bedroom place with one of the tiniest kitchens I've ever seen. You want that mini pot pie maker? Okay. Yeah, I'm not going to argue with you, but you know, that now we lose cups. We're losing cups now. You want a mini pot pie maker? Guess what? We each get one glass and we get one coffee mug because we're making room for a mini pot pie maker you're going to use twice, mostly out of spite to prove me wrong. You're going to have a, a big party everyone's gonna come over and you make all these mini pot pies for everybody and then like really push them on people and the first mini pot pie is it's great it's fantastic i mean you're only making four at a time with this thing you got to put the rest in the oven right and then and and then so now you gotta if someone comes over and then you have this whole 
thing of mini pot pies and they're labeled in different ways. But you have that first one. It's incredible. But then you go, well, have another pot pie. And people are like, oh, is it? Oh, is there not anything? Oh, it's just just pot pies. You guys are just just made pot pies. Like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, we just made pot pies because that's how how much time it took. It it says it's easy on the box. It is easy. It's easy to make four of them. It's not easy to keep on whipping up and changing it up, storing them in the oven and keeping uh, and keeping the heat going. You don't you don't need all these gadgets. You need the simplest things for doing everything. And I'm a I'm a leftovers. I don't know if you guys mess around with leftovers. Love a good leftovers. Get this from my mom. She always liked making like huge, like multi multiple meal more than everyone's gonna eat. Having the leftovers, but see now you you make it in the pan or whatever. You make it in the oven, and it has a has a clear. The Omni Pan has a clear lid with a in a little uh, a little hole in it too. If you want to open up that hole get some ventilation in there so you can see what's going on love that no more of the tin foil over the thing and then you peek in it's drying out and and then when you're done with it you put it in the fridge and it's stuck in there and then you go and and you can put it in the microwave later or you can put it back in the oven if you don't want to have it soggy from the microwave you go you know you get it there's they sell it like oh you can you can uh, 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 prepare your food, and they're, t- eh, you know, you're not selling me on the preparing. Uh, like in my mind, I'm still using like a cutting board and that sort of thing. But they say, but whatever. I haven't looked into it, preparing it too. It's not a thing that I would. It's not. It's not part of what I would make for the the pitch on Shark Tank. Which, by the way, the reason why I want to consult on Shark Tank is because it's so labored. Everyone on Shark Tank. I don't know who's coaching these people, but it's like it's like some 1930s snake oil salesman. Every time you got a great product, just have a why are you pitching? Have a conversation. Tell me about your product. I don't need a whole like, hey, have you ever noticed this problem? <laughs> well, what are you gonna do about that? And I like, go, well, what do we do? And then you have the big reveal. Don't need it. I don't need it and I don't trust it. Why 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 are you doing the whole disingenuous thing? This isn't this isn't madman anymore. This isn't I'm sorry we don't live in in leave it to beaver you've seen too many infomercials. That's not where we're at as a society anymore. I'm sorry, Dorothy. We aren't in Kansas anymore. You got to be genuine. You got to believe in your product. You got to have a conversation about it. These people on Shark Tank, I can't, man, I can't get over it. They're, I get the public speaking is an art and everything, but just calm down a little bit. Just relax and tell me about the thing in the way you would talk, talk about it to a good friend of yours. That's how I want you to sell me a product on Shark Tank. All right. And so, so that's what this, this product is. It's the one 
the one set of pans to rule them all. And you leave some information out on Shark Tank too. You just get the point across, you show how great it is, and then and then you wait. And then they're gonna ans- ask questions. And then you're going to go and like, well, what's it made out of? That it's heat resistant and all this scratch resistant and everything. And you go, oh, oh, well, I'm, I'm glad you asked. Uh, it's actually a high performance uh, silicon that's been 100% tested by, by the FDA. Uh, and, and they're like, 100% FDA approved high grade silicon? How come you didn't even mention that? That's how great this product is. I'm learning new things you didn't even mention in the in the storefront in the in the first initial pitch. And so because what you want to do is everyone's always this is the sort of thing that like some pray some this this uh um this is like a, a something that a mom creates. This isn't this isn't some uh, lady with a shopping addiction. This is like a mom who needs to make good meal. She doesn't have time for every new gadget that you're only going to use once a year. Is a mini pot pie maker great? Uh, it is in heaven. In heaven. Every day you wake up and there's a new kitchen gadget and you get to play around with this new kitchen gadget and then and then the next day there's a new one and it doesn't clutter up everything else. But we live here in the real world where space is finite and we have limited resources and it's not that there's anything wrong with wanting a mini pot pie maker. It's just that you got to you got to make a list of your wants and desires in life and you start at the top you don't start you don't start with number 1000 mini pot pie maker and get that cuz now you're not now you're now you don't have the the money for actual things that are going to improve your life daily not just entertain people twice and then you have a fight about it and and uh and no one's happy. This is the sort of thing. If you're a mom and you're raising a adorable, uh, generous, uh, uh, sweet baby boy who's gonna grow up to support other artists on Patreon, and in doing so, get plugs for his mom's uh, business, and and that's the first thing. Oh, what would I like to promote? My mom's business. How sweet is that? You got to put a lot of time and energy into raising a sweet baby boy like that. That's why you need an Omnipan. <laughs> that's that's uh, that that just solves all of it. You know when you're at Christmas and everyone's trading the gifts, that's an easy one. You go to the kitchen store, you get the new fancy uh gadgets and you get like the see this is the thing that you want to stay away from is with the omnipan you're gonna you're gonna sell me on like oh it's easy to clean and it's scratch proof and it doesn't and it's it's just you know i even if it does it doesn't matter because every everything says that you can you, you can even the 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 um telemark or the 
infomercials rather. They ruined all that. We already saw the gadgets and the tests and we bought the things back in the 80s and we fell for it. We fell for it and we're not there anymore. And so you might genuinely have something that's like scratch proof and stain resistant, easy to clean and everything like that. But it doesn't, no one's, no one's believing that anyway. You sell the functionality. Omnipan, fantastic name, uh, by the way. Because what I do is I, I get this for my own mom. You go you go at Christmas and you put it in a really big box. And uh, and then you wait till everyone else is giving her like all the all the new gadgets. Here's like a uh, an electric whisk uh, that also does your taxes and and uh, oh an electric whisk that does your taxes and everyone gives her all these things she opens them up and it's like oh that's neat and exciting and then she opens up your omnipan and at first it's like oh these are oh pans oh okay it takes some explaining. It's not going to wow just looking at it. It's not the latest and greatest crap that no one needs. It, that just seems like a good idea, but it's definitely not. This is an actual good idea that's going to change your life. And then you explain what it is, and then you tell what the big box is for. That big box is for Goodwill, which is where all the gadgets she just got from everyone else is going in that box, as well as all the crap in her kitchen from the last gifts that she got that she knows she doesn't use. You don't do it in front of everybody. You help your mom do this afterwards after they leave. That's the true gift. And then you get out those Omni pans that aren't just great pans. What you've just bought is space. You've bought precious kitchen space for a person that you care about and there's very there's no greater gift than you you just bought less dishes to clean uh, and that's what you're selling all right that's what we're selling and so <laughs> so this is what did we oh 20 23 minute Omni pan bitch. I can do my own infomercials. I this is what I you get your own if if I'm into what you got, maybe, maybe you support me on Patreon. Maybe you get your own infomercial um from me. I no promises. Not everyone has an awesome invention. Not everyone is in some weird business like boat carpeting, right? It, it, I I can't riff like this just about anything. It need I need to have something to work with, and but you know, take a chance. Go and uh, go and support me on Patreon, and at the very least, you can join us on some game nights and other things like that. And uh, and uh, uh, yeah, so um, just kind of make another joke about Sahil being bad at. Uh, code names because I I like to if you join me for board game night I like to I like to playfully talk I don't I don't actually care about winning but I do like to talk a little bit of smack uh, it's <laughs> it's part of what I do um, so uh, so join Patreon check that out and thank you Sahil Shanoi for joining me next week we're talking all about what happens to your corpse. 
What happens to your car? Say you plop over in the ground, or not you, a squirrel, whatever. You plop over in the ground. What what happens next? What what kind of critters? What just happened to that ecosystem? What kind of critters um, are gonna uh, are gonna eat you up? How have you just fertilized that ground? Someone studies it. It's awesome. Little warning, you know, it's a little dark. It's a little dark. We talk about things crawling in your eyeballs and stuff like that. I love that kind of talk. I love it. You might not. But if you don't, I would be like, it's aversion therapy. I, I think it's I think it's healthy to think. To me, it helps to think things through all the way to the end. I think it's beautiful. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's what we got next week. At least that's the plan. Sometimes the plans change here, but, uh, that's, uh, it was a really terrific one. So that should be next week. And yeah, you guys are great. Those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.